Welcome to the Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 2, Chapter 12. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Chapter 12 Christ, to perform the office of mediator, behoved to become man. There are seven sections. Section 1 it deeply concerned us that he who was to be our mediator should be very God and very man. If the necessity be inquired into, it was not what is commonly termed simple or absolute, but flowed from the divine decree on which the salvation of man depended. What was best for us, our most merciful Father determined. Our iniquities, like a cloud intervening between him and us, having utterly alienated us from the kingdom of heaven, None but a person reaching to him could be the medium of restoring peace. But who could thus reach to him? Could any of the sons of Adam? All of them, with their parent, shuddered at the sight of God. Could any of the angels? They had need of a head, by connection with which they might adhere to their God entirely and inseparably. What then? The case was certainly desperate if the Godhead itself did not descend to us, it being impossible for us to ascend. Thus the Son of God behoved to become our Emmanuel, that is, God with us, and in such a way that by mutual union his divinity and our nature might be combined. Otherwise, neither was the proximity near enough, nor the affinity strong enough to give us hope that God would dwell with us. So great was the repugnance between our pollution and the spotless purity of God. Had man refrained free from all taint, he was of too humble a condition to penetrate to God without a mediator. What then must it have been, when by fatal ruin he was plunged into death and hell, defiled by so many stains, made loathsome by corruption, in fine, overwhelmed with every curse? It is not without cause, therefore, that Paul, when he would set forth Christ as the mediator, distinctly declares him to be man. There is, says he, quote, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, unquote. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. He might have called him God, or at least omitting to call him God, he might also have omitted to call him man. But because the Spirit, speaking by his mouth, knew our infirmity, he opportunely provides for it by the most appropriate remedy, setting the Son of God familiarly before us as one of ourselves. That to no one, therefore, may feel perplexed where to seek the Mediator, or by what means to reach him, the Spirit, by calling him man, reminds us that he is near, nay, contiguous to us, inasmuch as he is our flesh. And indeed, he intimates the same thing in another place, where he explains at greater length that he is not a high priest who, quote, cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin, unquote. Hebrews 4, verse 15. 
Section 2. This will become still clearer if we reflect that the work to be performed by the Mediator was of no common description, being to restore us to the divine favor so as to make us, instead of sons of men, sons of God, instead of heirs of hell, heirs of a heavenly kingdom. Who could do this unless the Son of God should also become the Son of Man, and so receive what is ours as to transfer to us what is His, making that which is His by nature to become ours by grace? Relying on this earnest, we trust that we are the sons of God, because the natural Son of God assumed to himself a body of our body, flesh of our flesh, bones of our bones, that he might be one with us. He declined not to take what was peculiar to us, that he might in his turn extend to us what was peculiarly his own, and thus might be in common with us both Son of God and Son of Man. Hence that holy brotherhood which he commands with our own lips, when he says, quote, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God, unquote. John 20, verse 17. In this way we have a sure inheritance in the heavenly kingdom, because the only Son of God, to whom it entirely belonged, has adopted us as his brethren, and if brethren, then partners with him in the inheritance. Romans 8, verse 17. Moreover, it was especially necessary for this cause also, that he who was to be our Redeemer should be truly God and man. It was his to swallow up death. Who but life could do so? It was his to conquer sin. Who could do so, save righteousness itself? It was his to put to flight the powers of the air and the world. Who could do so but the mighty power superior to both? But who possesses life and righteousness and the dominion and government of heaven but God alone? Therefore God, in his infinite mercy, having determined to redeem us, became himself our Redeemer and the person of his only begotten Son. Section 3 Another principal part of our reconciliation with God was that man, who had lost himself by his disobedience, should by way of remedy oppose to it obedience, satisfy the justice of God, and pay the penalty of sin. Therefore, our Lord came forth very man, adopted the person of Adam, and assumed his name that he might in his stead obey the Father, that he might present our flesh as the price of satisfaction to the just judgment of God, and in the same flesh pay the penalty which we had incurred. Finally, since as God only he could not suffer, and as man only could not overcome death, he united the human nature with the divine, that he might subject the weakness of the one to death as an expiation of sin, and by the power of the other, maintaining a struggle with death, might gain us the victory. Those, therefore, who rob Christ of divinity or humanity, either detract from his majesty and glory, or obscure his goodness. On the other hand, they are no less injurious to men, undermining and subverting their faith, which, unless it rests on this foundation, cannot stand. Moreover, the expected Redeemer was that son of Abraham and David, whom God had promised in the law and in the prophets. Here believers have another advantage. Tracing up his origin in regular series to David and Abraham, they more distinctly recognize him as the Messiah celebrated by so many oracles. But special attention must be paid to what I lately explained namely, that a common nature is the pledge of our union with the Son of God, that, clothed with our flesh, he warred to death with sin, that he might be our triumphant conqueror, that the flesh which he received of us he offered in sacrifice, in order that, by making expiation, he might wipe away our guilt and appease the just anger of his Father. Section 4. He who considers these things with due attention will easily disregard vague speculations which attract giddy minds and lovers of novelty. One speculation of this class is that Christ, even though there had been no need of his interposition to redeem the human race, would still have become man. 
I admit that in the first ordering of the creation, while the state of nature was entire, he was appointed head of angels and men. For which reason Paul designates him, quote, the firstborn of every creature, unquote, Colossians 1, verse 15. But since the whole scripture proclaims that he was clothed with flesh in order to become a redeemer, it is presumptuous to imagine any other cause or end. We know well why Christ was at first promised these, that he might renew a fallen world and succor lost man. Hence, under the law, he was typified by sacrifices to inspire believers with the hope that God would be propitious to them after he was reconciled by the expiation of their sins. Since from the earliest age, even before the law was promulgated, there was never any promise of a mediator without blood, we justly infer that he was destined in the eternal counsel of God to purge the pollution of man, the shedding of blood being the symbol of expiation. Thus, too, the prophets, in discoursing of him, foretold that he would be the mediator between God and man. It is sufficient to refer to the very remarkable prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, in which he foretells that he was, quote, smitten for our iniquities, unquote, that, quote, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, unquote, that as a priest, quote, he was made an offering for sin, unquote, Quote, that by his stripes we are healed, unquote. That as all, quote, like lost sheep have gone astray, unquote, quote, it pleased the Lord to bruise him and put him to grief, unquote. That he might, quote, bear our iniquities, unquote. After hearing that Christ was divinely appointed to bring relief to miserable sinners, whoso overleaps these limits gives too much indulgence to a foolish curiosity. Then, when he actually appeared, he declared the cause of his advent to be that by appeasing God, he might bring us from death unto life. To the same effect was the testimony of the apostles concerning him, John 1, verse 9, and 10, verse 14. Thus John, before teaching that the word was made flesh, narrates the fall of man. But above all, let us listen to our Savior himself when discoursing of his office. Quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, unquote. Again, quote, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live, unquote. Quote, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live, unquote. Quote, The Son of Man is come to save that which was lost, unquote. Again, quote, they that behold need not a physician, unquote. I should never have done were I to quote all the passages. Indeed, the apostles with one consent lead us back to this fountain, and assuredly, if he had not come to reconcile God, the honor of his priesthood would fall, seeing it was his office as priest to stand between God and men, and, quote, offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, unquote. Hebrews 5, verse 1. Nor could he be our righteousness, as having been made a propitiation for us, in order that God might not impute to us our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. In short, he would be stripped of all the titles with which Scripture invests him. Nor could Paul's doctrine stand, quote, what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and, for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Unquote. Romans 8, verse 3 nor what he states in another passage, quote, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, unquote. Titus 2, verse 11. And find the only end which the scripture uniformly assigns for the Son of God voluntarily assuming our nature, and even receiving it as a command from the Father is, that he might propitiate the Father to us by becoming a victim. 
quote, thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer, unquote, quote, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name, unquote. Quote, therefore doth my father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again, unquote. Quote, this commandment have I received of my father, unquote. Quote, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, unquote. Quote, Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name, unquote. Luke 24, verse 46, John 10, verse 17, and chapter 3, verse 14, and chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. Here he distinctly assigns as the reason for assuming our nature that he might become a propitiatory victim to take away sin. For the same reason Zacharias declares in Luke 1, verse 79, that he came, quote, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, unquote. Quote, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, unquote. Let us remember that all these things are affirmed of the Son of God, in whom, as Paul elsewhere declares, were, quote, hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, unquote, and save whom it was his determination, quote, not to know anything, unquote. Colossians 2, verse 3, and 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. Section 5. Should anyone object that in this there is nothing to prevent the same Christ who redeemed us when condemned, from also testifying his love to us when saved by assuming our nature, we have the brief answer that when the Spirit declares that by the eternal decree of God the two things were connected together, viz., that Christ should be our Redeemer and at the same time a partaker of our nature, it is unlawful to inquire further. He who is tickled with a desire of knowing something more, not contented with the immutable ordination of God, shows also that he is not even contented with that Christ who has been given us as the price of redemption. And indeed, Paul not only declares for what end he was sent, but rising to the sublime mystery of predestination, seasonably represses all the wantonness and puriency of the human mind. Quote, he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, unquote. Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 7. Here certainly the fall of Adam is not presupposed as anterior in point of time, but our attention is directed to what God predetermined before all ages, when he was pleased to provide a cure for the misery of the human race. If, again, it is objected that this counsel of God depended on the fall of man which he foresaw, to me it is sufficient, and more to reply, that those who propose to inquire are desired to know more of Christ than God predestinated by his secret decree, are presuming with impious audacity to invent a new Christ. Paul, when discoursing of the proper office of Christ, justly prays for the Ephesians that God would strengthen them, quote, by his spirit in the inner man, unquote, that they might, quote, be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, unquote. Ephesians 3, verses 16 and 18. As if he intended of set purpose to set barriers around our minds and prevent them from declining one iota from the gift of reconciliation whenever mention is made of Christ. Wherefore, seeing it is as Paul declares it to be, quote, a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, unquote, 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. In it I willingly acquiesce. 
And since the same apostle elsewhere declares that the grace which is now manifested by the gospel, quote, was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, unquote, 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, I am resolved to adhere to it firmly, even to the end. This moderation is unjustly vituperated by Osiander, who has unhappily in the present day again agitated this question, which a few had formerly raised. He brings a charge of overweening confidence against those who deny that the Son of God would have appeared in the flesh if Adam had not fallen, because this notion is not repudiated by any passage of Scripture. As if Paul did not lay a curse on perverse curiosity when, after speaking of the redemption obtained by Christ, he bids us, quote, avoid foolish questions, unquote, Titus 3, verse 9. To such insanity have some proceeded in their preposterous eagerness to seem acute, that they have made it a question whether the Son of God might not have assumed the nature of an ass. This blasphemy, at which all pious minds justly shudder with detestation, Osiander excuses by the pretext that it is nowhere distinctly refuted in Scripture. As if Paul, when he counted nothing valuable or worth knowing, quote, save Jesus Christ and him crucified, unquote, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, were admitting that the author of salvation is an us. He who elsewhere declares that Christ was by the eternal counsel of the Father appointed, quote, head over all things to the church, unquote, would never have acknowledged another to whom no office of redemption had been assigned. Section 6. The principle in which Osiander founds is altogether frivolous. He will have it that man was created in the image of God, inasmuch as he was formed on the model of the future Messiah, in order to resemble him whom the Father had already determined to clothe with flesh. Hence he infers that though Adam had never fallen from his first and pure original, Christ would still have been man. How silly and distorted this view is, all men of sound judgment will at once discern. Still he thinks he was the first to see what the image of God was, namely, that not only did the divine glory shine forth in the excellent endowments with which he was adorned, but God dwelt in him essentially. But while I grant that Adam bore the image of God, inasmuch as he was united to God, this being the truest and highest perfection of dignity, yet I maintain that the likeness of God is to be sought for only in those marks of superiority with which God has distinguished Adam above the other animals. All likewise, with one consent, acknowledge that Christ was even then the image of God, and accordingly, whatever excellence was engraven on Adam had its origin in this, that by means of the only begotten Son, he approximated to the glory of his Maker. Man, therefore, was created in the image of God, Genesis 1, verse 27, and in him the Creator was pleased to behold, as in a mirror, his own glory. To this degree of honor he was exalted by the kindness of the only begotten Son. But I add that, as the Son was the common head both of men and angels, so the dignity which was conferred on man belonged to the angels also. For when we hear them called the sons of God, in Psalm 82, verse 6, it would be incongruous to deny that they were endued with the same quality in which they resembled the Father. But if he was pleased that his glory should be represented in men and angels, and made manifest in both natures, it is ignorant trifling in Osiander to say that angels were postponed to men because they did not bear the image of Christ. They could not constantly enjoy the immediate presence of God if they were not like to him. Nor does Paul teach, in Colossians 3, verse 10, that men are renewed in the image of God in any other way than by being associated with angels that they may be united together under one head. In fine, if we believe Christ, our felicity will be perfected when we shall have been received into the heavens and made like the angels. But if Osiander is entitled to infer that the primary type of the image of God was in the man Christ, 
On the same ground may anyone maintain that Christ behoved partake of the angelic nature, saying that angels also possess the image of God. Section 7. Osiander has no reason to fear that God would be found a liar if the decree to incarnate the Son was not previously immutably fixed in his mind. Even had Adam not lost his integrity, he would, with the angels, have been like to God. And yet it would not therefore have been necessary that the Son of God should become either a man or an angel. In vain does he entertain the absurd fear that unless it had been determined by the immutable counsel of God before man was created that Christ should be born, not as the Redeemer, but as the first man, he might lose his precedence, since he would not have been born except for an accidental circumstance, namely, that he might restore the lost race of man, and in this way would have been created in the image of Adam. For why should he be alarmed at what the scripture plainly teaches that, quote, he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, unquote. Hebrews 4, verse 15. Hence Luke also hesitates not to reckon him in his genealogy as a son of Adam, Luke 3, verse 38. I should like to know why Christ is termed by Paul the second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47, unless it be that a human condition was decreed him for the purpose of raising up the ruined posterity of Adam. For if in point of order that condition was antecedent to creation, he ought to have been called the first Adam. Osiander confidently affirms that because Christ was in the purpose of God foreknown as man, men were formed after him as their model. But Paul, by calling him the second Adam, gives that revolt which made it necessary to restore nature to its primitive condition and intermediate place between its original formation and the restitution which we obtain by Christ. Hence it follows that it was this restitution which made the Son of God be born, and thereby become man. Moreover, Osiander argues ill and absurdly that as long as Adam maintained his integrity, he would have been the image of himself and not of Christ. I maintain, on the contrary, that although the Son of God had never become incarnate, nevertheless the image of God was conspicuous in Adam both in his body and his soul. In the rays of this image it always appeared that Christ was truly head, and had in all things the preeminence. In this way we dispose of the feudal sophism put forth by Osiander, that the angels would have been without this head, had not God purposed to clothe his Son with flesh, even independent of the sin of Adam. He inconsiderately assumes what no rational person will grant, that Christ could have had no supremacy over the angels, so that they might enjoy him as their prince, unless insofar as he was man. But it is easy to infer from the words of Paul, Colossians 1 verse 15, that inasmuch as he is the eternal word of God, he is the firstborn of every creature, not because he is created, or is to be reckoned among the creatures, but because the entire structure of the world, such as it was from the beginning when adorned with exquisite beauty, had no other beginning. Then, inasmuch as he was made man, he is the firstborn from the dead. For in one short passage, Colossians 1, verses 16 through 18, the apostle calls our attention to both views, that by the Son all things were created, so that he has dominion over angels, and that he became man in order that he might begin to be a redeemer. Owing to the same ignorance, Osiander says that men would not have had Christ for their king unless he had been a man as if the kingdom of God could not have been established by his eternal Son, though not clothed with human flesh, holding the supremacy while angels and men were gathered together to participate in his celestial life and glory. But he is always deluded, or imposes upon himself by this false principle, that the church would have been, 
Greek word, Alpha, Chi, Epsilon, Phi, Alpha, Lambda, Omicron, Nu, Ekephalon. Without a head, had not Christ appeared in the flesh. In the same way as angels enjoyed him for their head, could he not by his divine energy preside over men, and by the secret virtue of his spirit quicken and cherish them as his body, until they were gathered into heaven to enjoy the same life with the angels? The absurdities which I have been refuting, Osiander regards as infallible oracles. Taking an intoxicating delight in his own speculations, his want is to extract ridiculous pans out of nothing. He afterwards says that he has a much stronger passage to produce, namely, the prophecy of Adam, who, when the woman was brought to him, said, quote, This is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh, unquote. Genesis 2, verse 23. But how does he prove it to be a prophecy? Because in Matthew, Christ attributes the same expression to God, as if everything which God has spoken by man contained a prophecy. On the same principle, as the law proceeded from God, let Osiander in each precept find a prophecy. Add that our Savior's exposition would have been harsh and groveling had he confined himself to the literal meaning. He was not referring to the mystical union with which he has honored the church, but only to conjugal fidelity, and states that the reason why God declared man and wife to be one flesh was to prevent anyone from violating that indissoluble tie by divorce. If this simple meaning is too low for Osiander, let him censure Christ for not leading his disciples to the hidden sense by interpreting his father's words with more subtlety. Paul gives no countenance to Osiander's dream when, after saying that, quote, we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, unquote, he immediately adds, quote, this is a great mystery, unquote, Ephesians 5, verses 30 through 32. For he meant not to refer to the sense in which Adam used the word, but sets forth under the figure and similitude of marriage the sacred union which makes us one with Christ. His words have this meaning. For reminding us that he is speaking of Christ and the church, he, by way of correction, distinguishes between the marriage tie and the spiritual union of Christ with his church. Wherefore this subtlety vanishes at once. I deem it unnecessary to discuss similar absurdities. For from this very brief refutation, the vanity of them all will be discovered. Abundantly sufficient for the solemn nurture of the children of God is this sober truth that, quote, When the fullness of the time has come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them who were under the law, unquote. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Chapter 13, Christ Clothed with the True Substance of Human Nature. There are four sections. Section 1. Of the divinity of Christ, which has elsewhere been established by clear and solid proofs, I presume it were superfluous again to treat. It remains, therefore, to see how, when clothed with our flesh, he fulfilled the office of mediator. In ancient times the reality of his human nature was impugned by the Manichees and the Marcionites, the latter figuring to themselves a phantom instead of the body of Christ, and the former dreaming of his having been invested with celestial flesh. The passages of Scripture contradictory to both are numerous and strong. The blessing is not promised in a heavenly seed, or the mask of a man, but the seed of Abraham and Jacob, nor is the everlasting throne promised to an aerial man, but to the son of David, and the fruit of his loins. Hence, when manifested in the flesh, he is called the son of David and Abraham, not because he was born of a virgin, and yet created in the air, but because, as Paul explains, he was, quote, made of the seed of David according to the flesh, unquote. Romans 1, verse 3. As the same apostle elsewhere says, that he came of the Jews. 
Romans 9, verse 5. Wherefore our Lord himself, not contented with the name of man, frequently calls himself the Son of Man, wishing to express more clearly that he was a man by true human descent. The Holy Spirit, having so often, by so many organs, with so much care and plainness, declared a matter which in itself is not abstruse, who could have thought that mortals would have had the effrontery to darken it with their glosses? Many other passages are at hand, where it wished to produce more. For instance, that one of Paul that, quote, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, unquote, Galatians 4, verse 4, and innumerable others which show that he was subject to hunger, thirst, cold, and other infirmities of our nature. But from the many we must chiefly select those which may conduce to build up our minds in true faith, as when it is said, quote, Verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, unquote. Quote, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, unquote. Hebrews 2, verses 16 and 14. Again, quote, Both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, unquote. Quote, Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest, unquote. Hebrews 2, verses 11 and 17. Again, quote, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, unquote, Hebrews 4, verse 15, and the like. To the same effect is the passage to which we lately referred, in which Paul distinctly declares that the sins of the world behoved to be expiated in our flesh, Romans 8, verse 3. And certainly everything which the Father conferred on Christ pertains to us for this reason, that, quote, He is the head. Unquote, that from him the whole body is, quote, fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, unquote. Ephesians 4, verse 16. Nay, in no other way could it hold true, as is said, that the Spirit was given to him without measure, John 1, verse 16, and that out of his fullness have all we received, since nothing could be more absurd than that God, in his own essence, should be enriched by an adventitious gift. For this reason also Christ himself elsewhere says, quote, For their sakes I sanctify myself, unquote. John 17, verse 19. Section 2. The passages which they produce in confirmation of their error are absurdly rested, nor do they gain anything by their frivolous subtleties when they attempt to do away with what I have now adduced in opposition to them. Barcian imagines that Christ, instead of a body, assumed a phantom, because it is elsewhere said that he was made in the likeness of man, and found in fashion as a man. Thus he altogether overlooks what Paul is then discussing, in Philippians 2, verse 7. His object is not to show what kind of body Christ assumed, but that, when he might have justly asserted his divinity, he was pleased to exhibit nothing but the attributes of a mean and despised man. For in order to exhort us to submission by his example, he shows that when as God he might have displayed to the world the brightness of his glory, he gave up his right, and voluntarily emptied himself, that he assumed the form of a servant, and contented with that humble condition, suffered his divinity to be concealed under a veil of flesh. Here, unquestionably, he explains not what Christ was, but in what way he acted. Nay, from the whole context, it is easily gathered that it was in the true nature of man that Christ humbled himself. For what is meant by the words, he was, quote, found in fashion as a man, unquote, but that for a time, instead of being resplendent with divine glory, the human form only appeared in a mean and abject condition. 
nor would the words of Peter that he was, quote, put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, unquote, 1 Peter 3, verse 18, hold true, unless the Son of God had become weak in the nature of man. This is explained more clearly by Paul when he declares that, quote, he was crucified through weakness, unquote, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4, and hence his exaltation, for it is distinctly said that Christ acquired new glory after he humbled himself. This could fitly apply only to a man endued with a body and a soul. Quote, Mains, unquote, dreams of an aerial body, because Christ is called the second Adam, the Lord from heaven. But the apostle does not there speak of the essence of his body as heavenly, but of the spiritual life which, derived from Christ, quickens us. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47. This life Paul and Peter, as we have seen, separate from his flesh. Nay, that passage admirably confirms the doctrine of the orthodox as to the human nature of Christ. If his body were not of the same nature with ours, there would be no soundness in the argument which Paul pursues with so much earnestness. If Christ is risen, we shall rise also. If we rise not, neither hath Christ risen. Whatever be the cabals by which the ancient Manichees or their modern disciples endeavor to evade this, they cannot succeed. It is a frivolous and despicable evasion to say that Christ is called the Son of Man because he was promised to men. It being obvious that, in the Hebrew idiom, the Son of Man means a true man. And Christ, doubtless, retained the idiom of his own tongue. Moreover, there cannot be a doubt as to what is to be understood by the sons of Adam. Not to go farther, a passage in the 8th Psalm which the apostles apply to Christ will abundantly suffice. Quote, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Unquote. Psalm 8, verse 4. Under this figure is expressed the true humanity of Christ. For although he was not immediately descended of an earthly father, yet he originally sprang from Adam. Nor could it otherwise be said in terms of the passage which we have already quoted, quote, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, unquote. These words plainly proving that he was an associate and partner in the same nature with ourselves. In this sense also it is said that, quote, both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, unquote. The context proves that this refers to a community of nature, for it is immediately added, quote, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, unquote, Hebrews 2, verse 11. Had he said at first that believers are of God, where could there have been any ground for being ashamed of persons possessing such dignity? But when Christ, of his boundless grace, associates himself with the mean and ignoble, we see why it was said that, quote, he is not ashamed, unquote. It is vain to object that in this way the wicked will be the brethren of Christ, for we know that the children of God are not born of flesh and blood, but of the Spirit through faith. Therefore flesh alone does not constitute the union of brotherhood. But although the apostle assigns to believers only the honor of being one with Christ, it does not, however, follow that unbelievers have not the same origin accordingly to the flesh. Just as when we say that Christ became man, that he might make us sons of God, the expression does not extend to all classes of persons, the intervention of faith being necessary to our being spiritually engrafted into the body of Christ. A dispute is also ignorantly raised as to the term firstborn. It is alleged that Christ ought to have been the first son of Adam, in order that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. Romans 8, verse 29. 
but primogeniture refers not to age, but to degree of honor and preeminence of virtue. There is just as little color for the frivolous assertion that Christ assumed the nature of man and not that of angels, Hebrews 2, verse 16, because it was the human race that he restored to favor. The apostle, to magnify the honor which Christ has conferred upon us, contrasts us with the angels, to whom we are in this respect preferred. And if due weight is given to the testimony of Moses, Genesis 3, verse 15, when he says that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, the dispute is at an end. For the words there used refer not to Christ alone, but to the whole human race, since the victory was to be obtained for us by Christ. God declares generally that the posterity of the woman would overcome the devil, but this it follows that Christ is a descendant of the human race, the purpose of God in thus addressing Eve being to raise her hopes and prevent her from giving way to despair. Section 3 the passages in which Christ is called the seed of Abraham and the fruit of the loins of David, those persons with no less folly than wickedness, wrap up in allegory. Had the term seed been used allegorically, Paul surely would not have omitted to notice it when he affirms clearly and without figure that the promise was not given, quote, to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ, unquote, Galatians 3, verse 16. With similar absurdity they pretend that he was called the son of David, for no other reason but because he had been promised, and was at length in due time manifested. For Paul, after he had called him the son of David, by immediately subjoining according to the flesh, certainly designates his nature. So also, in Romans 9, verse 5, while declaring him to be, quote, God blessed forever, unquote, he mentions separately that, quote, as concerning the flesh, he was descended from the Jews, unquote. Again, if he had not been truly begotten of the seed of David, what is the meaning of the expression that he is the, quote, fruit of his loins, unquote? Or what the meaning of the promise, quote, of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne, unquote? Psalm 132, verse 11. Moreover, their mode of dealing with the genealogy of Christ, as given by Matthew, is mere sophistry. For though he reckons up the progenitors not of Mary but of Joseph, yet as he was speaking of a matter then generally understood, he deems it enough to show that Joseph was descended from the seed of David, since it is certain that Mary was of the same family. Luke goes still farther, showing that the salvation brought by Christ is common to the whole human race, inasmuch as Christ, the author of salvation, is descended from Adam, the common father of us all. I confess indeed that the genealogy proves Christ to be the son of David, only as being descended of the virgin. But the new Marcionites, for the purpose of giving a gloss to their heresy, namely to prove that the body which Christ assumed was unsubstantial, too confidently maintain that the expression as to seed is applicable only to males, thus subverting the elementary principles of nature. But as this discussion belongs not to theology, and the arguments which they adduce are too futile to require any labored refutation, I will not touch on matters pertaining to philosophy and the medical art. It will be sufficient to dispose of the objection drawn from the statement of the scripture that Aaron and Jehoiada married wives out of the tribe of Judah, and that thus the distinction of tribes was confounded if proper descent could come through the female. It is well known that in regard to civil order, descent is reckoned through the male and yet the superiority on this part does not prevent the female from having her proper share in the descent. This solution applies to all the genealogies. When scripture gives a list of individuals, it often mentions males only. Must we therefore say that females go for nothing? 
Nay, the very children know that they are classified with men. For this reason, wives are said to give children to their husbands, the name of the family always remaining with the males. Then, as the male sex has this privilege, that sons are deemed of noble or ignoble birth, according to the condition of their fathers, so, on the other hand, in slavery, the condition of the child is determined by that of the mother, as lawyers say, partus sequitur ventrum. Whence we may infer that offspring is partly procreated by the seed of the mother. According to the common custom of nations, mothers are deemed progenitors, and with this the divine law agrees, which could have had no ground to forbid the marriage of the uncle with the niece if there was no consanguinity between them. It would also be lawful for a brother and sister, uterine, to intermarry when their fathers are different. But while I admit that the power assigned to the woman is passive, I hold that the same thing is affirmed indiscriminately of her and of the male. Christ is not said to have been made by a woman, but of a woman. Galatians 4, verse 4. But some of this heard, laying aside all shame, publicly ask whether we mean to maintain that Christ was procreated of the proper seed of a virgin. I, in my turn, ask whether they are not forced to admit that he was nourished to maturity in the virgin's womb. Justly, therefore, we infer from the words of Matthew that Christ, inasmuch as he was begotten of Mary, was procreated of her seed. As a similar generation is denoted when Boaz is said to have been begotten of Rechab, Matthew 1, verse 5 and 16. Matthew does not here describe the virgin as the channel through which Christ flowed, but distinguishes his miraculous from an ordinary birth, and that Christ was begotten by her of the seed of David. For the same reason for which Isaac is said to be begotten of Abraham, Joseph of Jacob, Solomon of David, is Christ said to have been begotten of his mother. The evangelist has arranged his discourse in this way. Wishing to prove that Christ derives his descent from David, he deems it enough to state that he was begotten of Mary. Hence it follows that he assumed it as an acknowledged fact that Mary was of the same lineage as Joseph. Section 4 The absurdities which they wish to fasten upon us are mere puerile calumnies. They reckon it base and dishonoring to Christ to have derived his descent from men because in that case he could not be exempted from the common law which includes the whole offspring of Adam without exception under sin. But this difficulty is easily solved by Paul's antithesis, quote, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, unquote. Quote, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto the justification of life, unquote. Romans 5, verses 12 and 18. Corresponding to this is another passage, quote, the first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47. Accordingly, the same apostle in another passage, teaching that Christ was sent, quote, in the likeness of sinful flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, unquote, distinctly separates him from the common lot as being true man, and yet without fault and corruption. Romans 8, verse 3. It is childish trifling to maintain that if Christ is free from all taint and was begotten of the seed of Mary by the secret operation of the Spirit, it is not therefore the seed of the woman that is impure, but only that of the man. We do not hold Christ to be free from all taint, merely because he was born of a woman unconnected with a man, but because he was sanctified by the Spirit, so that the generation was pure and spotless, such as it would have been before Adam's fall. Let us always bear in mind that wherever Scripture adverts to the purity of Christ, it refers to his true human nature, since it were superfluous to say that God is pure. 
Moreover, the sanctification of which John speaks in his 17th chapter is inapplicable to the divine nature. This does not suggest the idea of a twofold seed in Adam, although no contamination extended to Christ, the generation of man not being in itself vicious or impure, but an accidental circumstance of the fall. Hence, it is not strange that Christ, by whom our integrity was to be restored, was exempted from the common corruption. Another absurdity which they obtrude upon us, viz., that if the word of God became incarnate, it must have been enclosed in the narrow tenement of an earthly body, is sheer petulance. For although the boundless essence of the word was united with human nature into one person, we have no idea of any enclosing. The Son of God descended miraculously from heaven, yet without abandoning heaven, was pleased to be conceived miraculously in the virgin's womb, to live on the earth and hang upon the cross, and yet always filled the world as from the beginning. Chapter 14 How Two Natures Constitute the Person of the Mediator There are eight sections. Section 1 When it is said that the Word was made flesh, we must not understand it, as if it were either changed into flesh or confusedly intermingled with flesh, but that he made choice of the virgin's womb as a temple in which he might dwell. He who was the Son of God became the Son of Man, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. For we maintain that the divinity was so conjoined and united with the humanity that the entire properties of each nature remain entire, and yet the two natures constitute only one Christ. If in human affairs anything analogous to this great mystery can be found, the most apposite similitude seems to be that of man, who obviously consists of two substances, neither of which, however, is so intermingled with the other as that both do not retain their own properties. For neither is soul body, nor is body soul. Wherefore, that is said separately of the soul, which cannot in any way apply to the body, and that, on the other hand, of the body, which is altogether inapplicable to the soul, and that, again, of the whole man, which cannot be affirmed without absurdity, either of the body or of the soul, separately. Lastly, the properties of the soul are transferred to the body, and the properties of the body to the soul, and yet these form only one man, not more than one. Such modes of expression intimate both that there is in man one person formed of two compounds, and that these two different natures constitute one person. Thus the scriptures speak of Christ. They sometimes attribute to him qualities which should be referred specially to his humanity, and sometimes qualities applicable peculiarly to his divinity, and sometimes qualities which embrace both natures and do not apply specially to either. This combination of a twofold nature in Christ they express so carefully that they sometimes communicate them with each other, a figure of speech which the ancients termed Greek words, iota, delta, iota, omega, mu, alpha, tau, omega, nu, idiomaton, chi, omicron, iota, nu, omega, nu, iota, alpha, koinonia, a communication of properties. Section 2. Little dependence could be placed on these statements were it not proved by numerous passages throughout the sacred volume that none of them is of man's devising. What Christ said of himself, quote, Before Abraham was I am, unquote, John 8, verse 58, was very foreign to his humanity. I am not unaware of the cavil by which erroneous spirits distort this passage, viz., that he was before all ages, inasmuch as he was foreknown as the Redeemer, as well in the counsel of the Father as in the minds of believers. 
But seeing he plainly distinguishes the period of his manifestation from his eternal existence, and professedly founds on his ancient government to prove his precedence to Abraham, he undoubtedly claims for himself the peculiar attributes of divinity. Paul's assertion that he is, quote, the firstborn of every creature, unquote, that, quote, he is before all things, and by him all things consist, unquote, Colossians 1, verses 15 and 17. His own declaration that he had glory with the Father before the world was, and that he worketh together with the Father, are equally inapplicable to man. These and similar properties must be specially assigned to his divinity. Again, his being called a servant of the Father, his being said to grow in stature and wisdom and favor with God and man, not to seek his own glory, not to know the last day, not to speak of himself, not to do his own will, his being seen and handled apply entirely to his humanity. Since, as God, he cannot be in any respect said to grow, works always for himself, knows everything, does all things after the counsel of his own will, and is incapable of being seen or handled. And yet... He not merely ascribes these things separately to his human nature, but applies them to himself as suitable to his office of mediator. There is a communication of, Greek word, iota, delta, iota, omega, u, alpha, tau, alpha, idiomata, are properties when Paul says that Paul purchased the church, quote, with his own blood, unquote, Acts 20, verse 28, and that the Jews crucified the Lord of glory, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. In like manner, John says that the word of God was, quote, handled, unquote. God certainly has no blood, suffers not, cannot be touched with hands. But since that Christ, who was true God and true man, shed his blood on the cross for us, the acts which were performed in his human nature are transferred improperly, but not causelessly, to his divinity. We have a similar example in the passage where John says that God laid down his life for us, 1 John 3, verse 16. Here a property of his humanity is communicated with his other nature. On the other hand, when Christ still living on the earth said, quote, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, unquote, John 3, verse 13, certainly regarded as man in the flesh, which he had put on, he was not then in heaven, but inasmuch as he was both God and man, he, on account of the union of a twofold nature, attributed to the one what properly belonged to the other. Section 3. But above all, the true substance of Christ is most clearly declared in those passages which comprehend both natures at once. Numbers of these exist in the Gospel of John. What we there read as to his having received power from the Father to forgive sins, as to his quickening whom he will, as to his bestowing righteousness, holiness, and salvation, as to his being appointed judge both of the quick and the dead, as to his being honored even as the Father, are not peculiar either to his Godhead or his humanity, but applicable to both. In the same way he is called the light of the world, the good shepherd, the door, the true vine, with such prerogatives the Son of God was invested on his manifestation in the flesh, and though he possessed the same with the Father before the world was created, still it was not in the same manner our respect. Neither could they be attributed to one who was a man and nothing more. In the same sense we ought to understand the saying of Paul, that at the end Christ shall deliver up, quote, the kingdom to God, even the Father, unquote, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. The kingdom of God assuredly had no beginning, and will have no end. 
but because he was hid under a humble clothing of flesh, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and humbled himself, Philippians 2 verse 8, and laying aside the insignia of majesty, became obedient to the Father, and after undergoing this subjection, was at length crowned with glory and honor, Hebrews 2 verse 7, and exalted to supreme authority, that at his name every knee should bow, Philippians 2 verse 10. So at the end he will subject to the Father both the name and the crown of glory, and whatever he received of the Father, that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 28 For what end were that power and authority given to him, save that the Father might govern us by his hand? In the same sense also he is said to sit at the right hand of the Father. But this is only for a time, until we enjoy the immediate presence of his Godhead. And here we cannot excuse the error of some ancient writers, who, by not attending to the office of the mediator, darkened the genuine meaning of almost the whole doctrine which we read in the Gospel of John, and entangled themselves in many snares. Let us therefore regard it as the key of true interpretation, that those things which refer to the office of mediator are not spoken of the divine or human nature simply. Christ, therefore, shall reign until he appear to judge the world, inasmuch as, according to the measure of our feeble capacity, he now connects us with the Father. But when, as partakers of the heavenly glory, we shall see God as he is, then Christ, having accomplished the office of mediator, shall cease to be the vicegerent of the Father, and will be content with the glory which he possessed before the world was. Nor is the name of the Lord specially applicable to the person of Christ in any other respect than in so far as he holds a middle place between God and us. To this effect are the words of Paul, quote, To us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him, unquote. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. That is, to the letter a temporary authority has been committed by the Father until his divine majesty shall be beheld face to face. His giving up of the kingdom to the Father, so far from impairing his majesty, will give a brighter manifestation of it. God will then cease to be the head of Christ, and Christ's own Godhead will then shine forth of itself, whereas it is now in a manner veiled. Section 4 this observation, if the readers apply it properly, will be of no small use in solving a vast number of difficulties. For it is strange how the ignorant, nay, some who are not altogether without learning, are perplexed by these modes of expression which they see applied to Christ, without being properly adapted either to his divinity or his humanity, not considering their accordance with the character in which he was manifested as God and man, and with his office of mediator. It is very easy to see how beautifully they accord with each other, provided they have a sober interpreter, one who examines these great mysteries with the reverence which is meet. But there is nothing which furious and frantic spirits cannot throw into confusion. They fasten on the attributes of humanity to destroy his divinity, and on the other hand on those of his divinity to destroy his humanity while those which, spoken conjointly of the two natures, apply to neither, they employ to destroy both. But what else is this than to contend that Christ is not man because he is God, not God because he is man, and neither God nor man because he is both at once? Christ, therefore, is God and man, possessing natures which are united but not confused. We conclude that he is our Lord and the true Son of God, even according to his humanity, though not by means of his humanity. 
For we must put far from us the heresy of Nestorius, who, presuming to dissect rather than distinguish between the two natures, devised a double Christ. But we see the scripture loudly protesting against this, when the name of the Son of God is given to him who is born of a virgin, and the virgin herself is called the mother of our Lord. Luke 1, verses 32 and 43. We must beware also of the insane fancy of Eutyches, lest, when we would demonstrate the unity of person, we destroy the two natures. The many passages we have already quoted in which the divinity is distinguished from the humanity, and the many other passages existing throughout Scripture, may well stop the mouth of the most contentious. I will shortly add a few observations, which will still better dispose of this fiction. For the present, one passage will suffice. Christ would not have called his body a temple, John 2, verse 19, had not the Godhead distinctly dwelt in it. Wherefore, as Nestorius had been justly condemned in the council of Ephesus, so afterwards was Eutyches and those of Constantinople and Chalcedon, it being not more lawful to confound the two natures of Christ than to divide them. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to ad at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word ad in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list, so once you've sent out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full contents of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26 free states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.